Let's pray to our Lord before we hear from his word. Father, what, a, what an incredible gift that you would speak to us and then you would, in your kindness, have your word recorded in this book. As we come to it, I ask um, that we would not treat it as any other book. It is not merely ink on a page, but your living and active word. It's able to cut through the nonsense of our culture and the nonsense in all of our hearts and to lead us in a direction of, of flourishing for ourselves and I pray for our city. What we need most out of this time is to, to, to become more impressed, more confident, more comforted by the work of Christ on our behalf. And so I ask that you would make him loud in the sermon. I pray that you would make him loud in our songs, loud in our conversations, and loud throughout this week until we gather again as your people to retell and remember of all that he has done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. October 2nd, 2021. So very recently, a NASCAR driver named Brandon Brown, wasn't known by almost anybody, won his first NASCAR race, and he was being interviewed by Kelly Stavast of NBC Sports at the Talladega Super Speedway. They're standing there, live TV, interviewing just one, and all of a sudden in the background, you could hear the crowd cheering. There's a little chant, kind of muffled, got a little bit louder, got a little bit louder. And also so loud that Kelly Stavos said, Brandon, do you hear what the crowd is saying? They're saying, let's go, Brandon. You don't even know what to do with yourselves right now, do you? <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> let's go, Brandon. They're cheering for you. Well, anyone that knows where this came from and what it means... The crowd, in fact, was not cheering for Brandon. They were actually cussing out President Joe Biden. The let's go meant something different. They were using a swear word, the mother of all swear words, to malign the current president. This phrase... And, and, and this will be, someone told me, I heard this multiple times, this is an equal opportunity offensive sermon. Someone said, way to make everyone mad today. So hang in there, hang in there. Um, this phrase uh, has become code for denouncing the president. It's chanted at sporting events all over the place. It's amazing how quickly it took off. Um, it, you, you see uh, there's people in Congress that would show up wearing face masks with it on the front. There was a Republican uh, a uh, congressional leader from Florida who just finished a talk in, in Congress and at the end of it actually said the words, let's go, Brandon. You can go get a, uh, you can get gun parts with it emblazoned on the gun parts. You can go out to the mall and see it as flags on the back of a truck. This past Christmas Eve, Jared Schmeck, 35-year-old father in, from Oregon, he was talking with President Biden and the First Lady on Christmas Eve at a live Santa tracker event. So they're like following Santa, he's there with his kids, and they're like reading stories, and he's talking to them, and at the end of the time that he's talking to the president, he says, Merry Christmas, let's go, Brandon. Does anyone see an issue with this? Now, I got to tell you, like, I didn't know what the phrase meant. 
for a long time. I just kept hearing. I didn't know. So I finally looked it up. I was like, why is everyone into Brandon? And um, so I looked it up, and, and it's clever. It's really clever. And that's part of what makes it so dangerous is that it's really contagious. And Christians are caught up. And what I would suggest to you is, is a very unbiblical way of speaking. Now, you don't have to go far, including, and I say this as winsomely and as gently as I can, you do not have to go very far, including the Instagram accounts and Facebook pages of people in this church that I deeply love, that are just as offensive towards our previous president. Everyone seems to be cursing everyone. But there's a more excellent way. One that we're invited to. And we're going to see it in Daniel chapter 4. We're going to look at two specific things that would change us and by God's grace change our world. Seek the good of everyone. Yes, everyone. And speak truth and love to anyone. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We're going to look, um, the plan, this is plan, Lord willing, is next week we're actually going to go back, we're going to do Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. We're going to try to hit like 100 verses for a very particular reason. But this week I want us to zero in on verses 4 through 27 um, so we can see something that's really easy to miss if you don't stare at it. This is God's holy and helpful for me, it has been a very convicting word this week. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospered in my palace, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they, should make, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of my, the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heavens, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision as my head lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaf, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sits over at the lowliest of men. This dream I, 
King Nebuchadnezzar saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. I want you to listen to Daniel's response now. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered, said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heaven and was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that, he, that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Feel free to grab a seat. I know a lot of verses. We're going to zero in on a few of them. Um, this text is, is telling the king this, judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. Daniel's reaction, though, is interesting because it's compassion, not celebration. Verse 19, it says, he heard this and he was alarmed. He was dismayed. The king says, no, 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 don't, don't, just tell me, the, it's okay, just tell me. He says, oh, king, may this be for your enemies? May this be for those who, who hate you? This is bonkers when you think about it. Nebuchadnezzar was a terrible person who did terrible things. Daniel had been stolen off of his land as a teenager. The Babylonian Empire came in, ransacked Jerusalem and Israel, destroyed the temple, destroyed their homes, destroyed their lives, and then he stole them and brought them a thousand miles back to Babylon. By all accounts, he was a very unrighteous leader. He was the bully of bullies. And we see it in this text in verse 4, this little insight. I, Nebuchadnezzar, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. His life was so lavish while others were so lousy. And in light of the judgment that God is declaring from the Most High, he has compassion. Not said, oh, he's going to get it. Finally. I read this text, say this text. I kept thinking about Ezekiel 18.32. says, the Lord speaking, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. 
Notice that that word anyone, it doesn't have a footnote next to it. It doesn't have an asterisk next to it. God doesn't delight in the death of anyone. This is really hard because there's really harmful people in this world. Let me give you a couple things that might help. The first one is this, babies. Um, Babies can help. Um, It's really hard to hate a baby. Like, I know you get frustrated if you have a baby, cry in the middle of the night, but like, if you're the type of person that sees like a a one-year-old and you go, I don't like you, (laughs) like, there is something seriously troubling about you. Um, Welcome, and we should talk. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was a baby. Cried, needed comfort from his mom. Maybe fed, needed to learn how to walk. Needed to... Donald Trump was a baby. First service, I had to keep people from the one from making a joke. Um, I looked it up. I, I was, I tried to get like, I didn't look. I knew he was a baby. I, knew, I didn't have to verify that. Um, but I tried. I wanted to get a picture. But when I typed Donald Trump baby, the the results I got were not appropriate for church on Sunday, which I actually think illustrates the point. He's just a little guy. When he stumbled, got hurt, needed to be comforted, when he went to first grade, was hoping that someone would welcome him to the cool table and share their milk. The reason I bring bring this up is that first you have to humanize people and then you can help them. See, when we we really get angry at people, we really frustrated, and we might have righteous and good reasons to get angry, but when we dehumanize them, we we rob them of this beautiful thing called the Imago Dei. That every person you see, every person you meet, Nebuchadnezzar, whatever political leader is your most disliked, they are made in the image of God. Daniel knew that. Daniel was mistreated, Daniel was maligned, Daniel was harmed, Daniel was threatened, Daniel was abducted, and Daniel was still dismayed. Let me give you one other word that might help, vengeance. It's kind of weird to put baby and vengeance together as the help for us to seek the good of everyone, but, but, but this has actually been something for me that has been really, really helpful. Romans 12, 19. We'll we'll look at Romans 12 again a little bit later. Great chapter all the time. I think very timely for this particular moment in cultural history, the entire chapter. But Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The dream says judgment is coming, but Daniel's not the one that doles it out. God will take care of it. One of the things that frees us from needing to, because let's be honest, babies can grow up and become terrible bullies. And one of the things that can help us to not demonize them is to remember that the Lord will met out justice. He will bring it about. He he promises to do it, and he frees us from the need to, which means we can do what Daniel does, which is, is not celebration, but compassion. There's this wonderfully helpful chapter in Jeremiah, another prophet of God, and in it he is writing to the exiles that are in Babylon. There's this letter written to them to say, this is how I want you to live there. I want you to seek the good of everyone, 
Yes, everyone. And then he gives us some instruction for what we're to do. In Jeremiah 29, verse 1, we see this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, to the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it's, you've been carried off. He did this. He destroyed your lives. He drug you here. Now here's what I want you to do. Verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. He's saying, I want you to sink in roots. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I don't want you to just disconnect from this communion. I want you to, to make a home there. And then listen to this in verse 7. But Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And speaking up, what Daniel was doing is he wasn't just seeking the good of that king. He was seeking the good of that kingdom. He said, king, you're an unrighteous king. There's things you're doing that are not okay. Repent. Throw off your unrighteousness. Seek to do good to those that are impoverished. Seek to do good to those that are marginal. Seek to do good to those that you've been bullying around. Larry Hurtado in his, his book, Destroyer of the Gods, he sets out to explain why in, in ancient Rome, in the early church, in the first couple of centuries, why is it that Christianity took root? Why did it grow at the rate that it grew when at that time Christianity was the most marginalized and persecuted faith system that you could possibly be part of? People were, 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 were lost employment, people were, were beaten, people were maligned, and people were martyred constantly for their faith in Christ. So how is it that people kept coming to faith in Christ? And, and what Hurtado says, his main thesis is that Christianity carried with it this unique category defined social vision this picture for society that, that no doubt offended some, but was very attractive to others. Social vision, that's what Jeremiah is writing about. That's what Daniel was leaning into. He said, God wants something different for this community than what's happening. Tim Keller, picking up on this in his book, How to Reach the West Again, he summarizes the social vision of the early church into five categories. Put these up on the screen here. And say so these are five ways that you could understand this, this vision that God's people had for this Roman empire that they lived in. That society would be composed, it would be multiracial and multi-ethnic. And that in, in the context of a social system in Rome that was in effect a caste system that was very tribal. Say, no, 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 the goal is every tribe and every tongue brought together. They were highly committed too. They were highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized. The social vision of the early church was that everybody mattered. Everyone was made in the image of God. Everyone deserved grace and kindness and mercy and generosity, that there was no Passover people. There's no throwaway people. One of the early Roman emperors said something like this, the, the Christians don't just care for their own poor, they care for all the poor. Third, Strongly, or they were non-retaliatory, marked by a commitment to forgiveness. They turned the other cheek. They granted forgiveness. For the, the, the Christians were known when they were, they were taken into the Colosseum and they are being fed to wild animals to be praying for their accusers. It was stunning. 
Four, strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. In a culture that did not value the sanctity of all life, they were pro-life in the best sense of the phrase. They would go and find children discarded. They would adopt them, welcome them. They would ransom people out of slavery. They, 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 care, they, they knew, they knew every person was made in the image of God, and they lived like it. And they, rev- they had a revolutionizing sec- sex ethic. Um, they took physical intimacy, and they removed it from commodification of the Roman Empire, and they put it in the rightful place, which is covenantal. See, in the Roman Empire, if you were a married man, I'll just give you one example. If you were a married man, you could, you could sleep with anyone you wanted to as long as they were of a lower social status. Any age, any gender. Think of what that does in that culture to those that are marginalized, those that don't have voices, those that don't have power. And the Christians said, no, 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 no. We are dignifying every human being. Now, as you look at that, which ones feel like the Democrats own them? Which ones feel like the Republicans own them? I love this insight from Keller in his book, How to Reach the Blessing. He says, these five elements are just as category-defined just as offensive and attractive today. The first two views on ethnic diversity and caring for the poor sound, in quotes, liberal. And the last two views on abortion and sexual ethics sound conservative. The third element, being non-retaliatory, sounds like no particular party today. Amen? Where's the civility? Where's the kindness? Where's the grace? Where's the curiosity? Where's the forget? Where's the understanding? Sounds like no particular party today and is commonly rejected in today's culture of outrage. Churches today are under enormous pressure to jettison the first two or the last two, but not to keep them all. Yet to give up any of them would make Christianity the handmaid of a particular political program and undermine the missionary encounter. See, God puts you where you are as exiles in a host culture for the good of the culture. He puts you in your classroom. He puts you in that boardroom. He puts you on that sports team. He puts you in that friend group. He puts you in that apartment complex. He puts you in that neighborhood to seek the good of everyone that's around you. Yes, everyone. Regardless of their political affiliations, regardless of of their, their parenting choices, regardless of their marital preferences, to seek the good of everyone. Yes, everyone. People are worth fighting for. And as Jeremiah said, the city is worth fighting for. Love this scene from Lord of the Rings and uh, the two towers. Lord of the Rings is this epic story of two hobbits trying to destroy this ring that represents evil. And if they can destroy the ring that represents evil, that's corrupting the hearts of all of creation, then good things will, goodness will come, a new creation will come, life will come, healing will come. In the second book, they're having this, this conversation, Sam and Frodo, these two hobbits, and the journey is so perilous and it's so difficult and there's so much opposition. And there's this scene that's just beautiful. I'm just going to do it. We'll do a little story time. Let me quote to you Sam. As he talks with Frodo, he says, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know how it ends. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. 
even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out all the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Photo, I do understand. I, I know now, folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't because they were holding on to something. Frodo responds, what are they holding on to, Sam? Sam looks at Frodo and he says, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Oh, dear Christians, there is good in this world. It is worth fighting for. God has placed you where he's placed you to seek the good of even the fiercest bullies for the healing of our communities. Love this prayer by Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in the giving that we receive. It is in the pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in the dying that we are born to eternal life. Daniel is a case study on living out that prayer. People are worth fighting for. This world is worth fighting for. The question is how. Um, I would say Daniel 4 gives us a, a good model. It's not the only one. This isn't the only strategy. This is so complex and challenging. But let me give you one strategy for this. To seek the good of everyone, yes, everyone, and to speak truth and love to anyone. Yes, anyone give you three handles with this. It's going to be speech that is countercultural. It's going to be speech that requires courage. It's going to be speech that needs to be so full of Christ. It's countercultural. Timothy Keller in Uncommon Ground says this, loving your neighbor is easiest when there's very little difference. Loving your neighbor is easiest when there's no contentious issues between you. Loving your neighbor is easiest when their lifestyle matches yours. Loving your neighbor is easiest when they believe like you do, vote like you do, shop where you do, have the same economic status as you do, and send their children to the same schools as you do. The smaller the gap between you, the easier the bridge is to build. The biggest need for bridge building, however, is where the gap is biggest. Where you don't understand the other person, or when you feel the other person might be your opponent, or even someone who hates you. Yet the degree of difficulty in loving our neighbor doesn't excuse us from loving that neighbor. I'm gonna, let me reread that line. Daniel had every reason to not love Nebuchadnezzar. Every reason. Yet the degree of difficulty in loving our neighbor, it doesn't excuse us from loving that neighbor. And I get this is so immensely countercultural in an outrage, hostile, angry culture that, ha- that, that doesn't seek forgiveness, doesn't seek civility, doesn't seek reconciliation, doesn't seek understanding. It's just filled with 140 character quips of how to tear people down. I've thought about this often, this 
trying to love people that don't like you. I've thought about this often as I sit in coffee shops around town, and I eavesdrop in on the conversations around me unapologetically. If you wanted your conversation to be private, you shouldn't have done it there. I'm a preacher. I need sermon illustrations. So I just listen (laughs) unapologetically. Um, As I listen, and some of the things I hear, I go, oh, my goodness. If you knew what I believed, you'd hate me. And then I think this, I go, but I just heard your conversation and I hate some of the things that you like. (laughs) They dishonor my God and they enslave people to sin. But here's what I'm going to choose not to do. I'm never going to hate you. Seek the good of everyone. Yes, everyone. I know it's countercultural. But we have such an opportunity to stand out is, is different. Such an opportunity. Um, again, from Keller in Uncommon Ground, he makes this insight. He says, the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes requires humility, and the impetus for doing so requires patience rooted in hope and tolerance grounded in love. This is increasingly difficult at a time in which Sherry Turkle argues social media and other technologies significantly reduces our ability to exercise empathy. And his reference to Sherry Turkle is a great book called Reclaiming Conversation. I would commend it to anybody. But in her book, she basically, like, the way we're functioning as a society is making it increasingly difficult to care about anyone else in an understanding way and to speak well with one another. Indeed, we have seen a sharp decline in our ability to sympathize, understand, and talk face-to-face with those who have different views and beliefs. And this is the line I really want you to hear. If our culture cannot form people who can speak with both conviction and empathy across deep differences, then it becomes even more important for the church to use its theological and spiritual resources to produce such people for such a time as this with courage and conviction and compassion and tenderness in our hearts. The Christian calling is to be shaped and reshaped into people whose every thought and action is characterized by faith, hope, and love who then speak and act in the world with humility, patience, and tolerance. Romans 12, 21. It's so easy. The bullies are real. They're loud. They're loud. And we're angry. Let's be honest. We are angry. We're all like exposed nerves. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This past Tuesday, I was driving one of my kids to school, and I surprised him by swinging through one of his favorite places for breakfast. And we're a couple cars behind where the food's going to be handed out, and my window's down, and so I'm hearing this conversation, and it's kind of loud, and there's yelling. And we get up to the window, and this poor woman is tears in her eyes. She just goes, he was so mean to me. I don't feel very good. He's just so mean to me. And I was like, oh my goodness, what happened? And she goes... Well, I'm legally required to ask if somebody wants a straw. And he yelled at me. He said, you know I don't want a straw. I'm going to McDonald's. She's like, good. (laughs) Then she's like, but then, you know, she said, she goes, but I don't want to wish that on them either. Everyone is just so angry. And it's so easy to stand out. So all I did, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. You don't deserve to be treated like that. And my son who was with me was really sweet to her too. And she goes, he was so mean, but you guys made it better. Have a good day. Would you like a straw? No, she didn't say that part. Um, But that would have been funny. All right. 
You know how easy it is to stand out in an outraged culture? You know how you do it? Seek the good of everyone. Yes, everyone. Just this morning in my, my prayer and Bible time, before coming to service, um, I came across these two incredible verses from Luke chapter 6. This is our Lord talking to us. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. And listen to this phrase. I don't know if I've ever seen this before. I don't know how many times I've read this, but it just was like blazingly bright to me. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Wow. Judgment was coming for Nebuchadnezzar, and what Daniel felt was not celebration, but compassion. Why? Because the Father, he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Oh, and it's going to take courage. It's countercultural. I get it. We're swimming in it. We're swimming in it. And it's going to take courage to speak truth in love. Um, verse 27 wasn't necessary. That's what I think is interesting. The, the actual call to Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to change. Like he could have just, he, he'd already done what the king had asked by the end of verse 26. He'd heard the dream. He gave the interpretation to the dream. He could have just said, that's it. Walked away, excited the king's finally going to get what's coming to him. But what he does is he says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. By practicing righteousness and your iniquity, by showing mercy into the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a... He's saying, it, I, I want it to go better for you. So I'm willing to say something that doesn't need to be said. Imagine how awkward that was. Oh, king, great king, repent. It's going to take courage. It's February 3rd, 1994, National Prayer Breakfast. The keynote speaker was a Nobel Prize winner, um, Emma Peace Prize winner who had spent her life working in some of the most impoverished areas with the most overlooked people. It's Mother Teresa. She comes into this prayer breakfast at Washington Hotel. There's almost 3,000 people packed into this room. In this room are Supreme Court justices, um, the bigwigs of our elected officials. In the very front, it's President Clinton and first wife Hillary Clinton. And Mother Teresa walks up on the stage. Diminutive woman with all the moral authority that anyone could have. In her talk, it was titled, Whatever You Did Unto the Least, You Did Unto Me. And she began to, to talk about it right thing, and she got to, to John the Baptist's mom. She talked about when Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist and Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, came near. That John the ba John leapt inside the womb. And in the room, people could kind of fill this room and be like, oh, where's this going to go? What's going to happen? She went on and she talked about Jesus dying on a cross to do good to us, to save us from our selfishness and our sin. And then she went on, she talked about the destroyers of peace in our culture, and she, she talked about drugs. She said, oh, I've just seen so many youth just, just be destroyed by this. She talked about poverty. She said, oh, it's so hard to thrive in that environment. And then she went on to say this, and I quote her here. Remember who's in the room? About 3,000 people. She goes, the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion. 
And the room just goes quiet. For a couple of minutes, there's a little applause, and then a little bit more, and a little bit more. And there's like five minutes now of the room applauding, but it's only pockets of the room because if you know anything about the Clinton administration is that it was not pro-life, but very much pro-choice. And she just called out, who is arguably the, the leader of the free world, on his policies and treatments of children. I'm like, think of that courage. To fight for what's right. She goes on. She ended it with this. Please don't kill the child. I want the child. Please give me the child. You're going to have to have countercultural love for people, and you're going to have to have steel in the spine to speak up in the board meeting when you need to. To stand up on your sports team when you need to. To use your voice in the classroom when you need to. And I know, I don't, I don't know when it is, I don't know how it is, I don't know where it is. To be willing to, to be courageous in those moments, but not for self-vindication, but for the healing of our communities. Mother Teresa, she wasn't being rude, she was being strong. It's like, be angry. I love Scott Sauls in, in a talk about gentleness out of a book called Gentleness, Our, Our Secret Weapon in a, in a World of, of Rage. He talks about the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger is that unrighteous anger is angry at people. Righteous anger is angry at problems. And God is inviting us to this countercultural, courageous way of carrying ourselves, and what we carry into that is make it full of Christ. Daniel delivered bad news to, to the king, but he didn't stop there. He didn't just say, judgment is coming. He said that there's a way out. He didn't say that the pain is there. He said there's also a way to be healed. And I know that one of the things for me that can be so uncomfortable having this conversation with our culture that doesn't love the king that I love is that it's awkward and hard and difficult. I don't want to be mean or, or hurt people. But what you're doing is you're offering healing it's God's incredible kindness to us to say, you are, in, you are a sinner in need of a savior. You are in trouble, but there is a way out. And yes, the solution is gonna hurt for the king. It meant repenting and humbling himself and confessing his sins and changing his behavior. I think about this. I broke my thumb. I was ninth grade. I was playing baseball. I was tagging someone out at second base and they were out. I got them early and they slid into my thumb and it snapped my thumb over. Yeah, glove comes off and it's making a U-turn. It just was, I went home, hey, Dad, I think I messed up my thumb. He looks at me, he's like, yep, yeah, we'll probably go see a doctor. I said, well, I'm going to take a shower first. There might be a cute nurse there. He said, okay. So I took a shower. It's dumb. Um, I, I was and am dumb. Um, but it didn't hurt that bad, actually. It kind of felt like it got jammed. It's kind of how it felt. Go to the doctor, they say, it's broken, we got to take an x-ray, but it's broken. So I take the x-ray, it comes back in, it's broken, and then he says, this is really going to hurt. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I got a broken thumb. He says, no, I got to reset the bone before I put the cast on. Grabbed it. Twisted it, yanked it, moved it. Got it to line up. It hurt so bad. But he wasn't being mean to me. 
He's trying to heal me. See, when you go into this culture and you give bad news about people's condition outside of Christ, because you're going not with celebration but compassion, to even the biggest bullies, you're not going to hurt them. You're trying to heal them. And we of all people, we get to carry the best news to seek the best good of even the worst people. Daniel, he, he has this line in verse 27, this, or this word in verse 27, perhaps. He says, King, okay, it's really bad for you. It's going to get really bad. But if you do this and this and this, perhaps God may be merciful, merciful to you. Do you know that we have better than perhaps? That the perhaps gives way to a yes and amen in Christ. Do you know that we're told that all who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved to the very worst, to the very most rebellious, to the very most harmful. And so when we go into our culture, we say, oh, goodness, there's judgment coming, but there's one that took the judgment if you would trust in him. There's one that came from heaven to earth because you will never climb your way there, and he lived the life that you were meant to live, and then he died in the place of all that would trust him. He went to a tomb, and he rose from the dead, and if you, and I know it's going to hurt you because it's going to require you to be humbled, and you're going to have to bend your knees and say, I can't do it. I can't fix myself. I can't cleanse myself. But there's one who can, and we turn back to him. The divine physician will heal you eternally. The gospel's great enough for anyone. I'm going to end with this. The gospel's great enough for you. It's great enough for you. My concern with um, starting with let's go, Brandon, amongst many things, um, is that maybe you're wearing that shirt. Maybe your car's in the parking lot with that sticker. Or maybe you got stickers from a few years ago denouncing Trump. Or maybe you have posts and likes and things that you, you, you hear this and you go, oh, goodness, I think my speech has not been gracious and seasoned with salt. I kind of celebrate the downfall instead of weep over a broken human. Maybe you don't have the posts, you don't have the likes, but maybe you've just had the thoughts and they've harbored in your hearts. Maybe it's not towards those politicians. Maybe it's just people that are in our communities and in our workplaces and in our classrooms. Well, the gospel's great enough for you. And Christ's righteousness is what you need. It's what I need about two weeks ago. I went on a seven-minute rant with my wife, Katie. Um, I swore more in those seven minutes than I, I think I have in my entire, I was, I was so frustrated. I was so angry. I'm so tired of stuff. I just lost my mind. I might have lost my salvation for like seven minutes and then came back to faith. I'm right there with you. Oh, it's so hard to love mean people. It's so hard to love people that you don't like their policies. It's so hard to love people that you just so disagree with. What It's so hard to love people that are, you feel like are trampling your rights. It's so hard to love people that you feel aren't fighting enough for your rights. It's so hard. But Daniel and ultimately Christ has shown us such a better way. Timothy Keller says this, Jesus doesn't tell us to tolerate our enemies. He says to love them. And thank God that Jesus does not merely tolerate us. He embraces us 
across difference and welcomes us into his arms. Let's seek the good of everyone and change this world. Let's pray. Lord, would you make us instruments of your peace? Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Help us love everyone like Jesus loves us. In our Savior's name we pray, amen.